every 10 seconds. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. That's how often a report of suspected child abuse and neglect is made to a child welfare social worker somewhere in the U.S. According to the National Children's Alliance, 3.1 million reports of child abuse and neglect are made in a year in the U.S. That averages out to one every 10 seconds. A report goes something like this. I'm calling because I'm worried about three little kids who are living with their parents in a van somewhere in the woods. I don't know if there's heat for that van, but it's cold now at night. Those children aren't bathing or brushing their teeth or eating right. The parents also fight physically, and I know one of the kids has gotten in the middle of those fights. Ten seconds later, there's a report to another child welfare agency that sounds something like this. I'm calling because I'm worried about an 18-month-old who may be neglected or even abused. He lives with his mom, but she's homeless. She's staying with friends, and then they were in a motel. Now they're at a family shelter, but her time there is running out. And she smokes weed in front of that baby, and she lets the dad see the baby, but he has a conviction for doing something with one of her other kids that he's not the father of. I think it's indecent liberties with a minor or something like that. What does a social worker do after receiving reports like that? Welcome to season two of Beyond the Bench, a podcast by the North Carolina Judicial College at the UNC School of Government. I'm Sarah DePasquale, and your host for season two, which tells the story of homelessness, neglect, and the child welfare system in North Carolina. During this season, we'll talk about what family homelessness looks like, whether homelessness is child neglect, and if and when it is, how the child welfare system responds to families affected by homelessness. We'll do this by following two court cases from the past year that address child neglect because of allegations related to homelessness. Each episode represents a different stage in the child welfare process you'll hear from lots of different people who will share the various perspectives in a case, including shelter providers, county departments, a parent attorney, the children's guardian ad litem, and the court. If you're just tuning in now, in episode one, we talked about what homelessness looks like and what is neglect under North Carolina law. We ended with where we started today, a report of suspected child neglect being made that talked about homelessness, but it did include other factors that the children were experiencing. In today's episode, through interviews with County Department social workers and attorney, the State Guardian ad litem program, a parent attorney, and district court judges, we'll discuss how the County Department responds to a report of suspected neglect and when court action is needed. This area of the law has its own language, and you'll learn about some new terms today, including screening in, screening out, assessment, filing a petition, and non-secure custody. Let's start with the department's response to a report. Here, Jessica Ford of Catawba County Social Services explains what happens when a person calls to make a report. They are immediately directed to an intake social worker who uses uh, the state's structured interview guide 
to assess um, what their concerns are and which alleged maltreatment um, that they might fit into, and they ask them the uh, mandated questions that are required according to what the reporter's concern is. Um, and then after that, they've fully completed that, they um, consult with the policy manual to determine whether or not it meets screening criteria, and then they immediately consult with a supervisor and they make a two-level decision about whether the allegations rise to the level of alleged uh, abuse, neglect, or dependency. You're probably wondering what Jessica's talking about. In North Carolina, the State Division of Social Services, which is part of DHHS, has written policy manuals that provides guidance for all 100 county departments to follow in a child welfare case. And there's a structured intake policy for a county department to follow when a report's made. There are screening tools that address the different parts of North Carolina's definition of neglect. Based on the reports that were made at the start of this episode, the suspected neglect is based on either the children are not receiving proper care or supervision from a parent, or the children live in an environment that's injurious to their welfare or both. The social worker who takes the report of the family living in the van should look at the screening tool for improper care by a parent and ask the following questions. One, is the parent failing to provide sufficient food to the children? Two, is the parent failing to ensure proper hygiene? And three, is the parent failing to provide adequate shelter for the children? And if the social worker is looking at the screening tool for whether there's an injurious environment for the child's welfare, the questions to ask are one, whether there are structural issues with the living environment that place a child's health or safety at risk. Two, whether the environment is hazardous or immediately threatening. Three, whether there are criminal elements that place the child's health or safety at risk. And four, whether the child is living with a sex offender. For the mom who's in the shelter with her 18-month-old, the report also raised her using marijuana in front of her child. The state's screening tools also address apparent substance abuse. Additional questions the social worker should ask the reporter are, one, is the mom using money to buy drugs instead of providing for basic needs? And two, whether her using drugs interferes with her ability to care for her child. When domestic violence is reported, like with our family who's living in the van, the social worker should also ask the reporter if he or she knows, has the child ever called 911, intervened, or been physically harmed during an incident? If the child's afraid for him or herself, other family members, or pets, if the child was present during or knows about the abuse, whether weapons are involved, how often the abuse is occurring, if there are any current court orders of protection, and if the abuser is controlling access to necessities like food, shelter, or medical care. In our two reports, after the social worker completes and documents the report, he or she must review the report with a supervisor, and together, they'll make a decision as to whether neglect has been reported. If they decide that neglect was not reported, the case will be screened out. This means nothing happens with the report other than the documentation of the call. The family never even knows a report was made. Dina Fleming of the State Guardian Ad Litem Program gives examples of when a report would be screened out. Like I think of military families and, you know, I'm not, I didn't come from that, but, you know, when I talk to friends that did, I think about how much they moved and how difficult that could have been for them. But that's not, that's not neglect. I mean, just because your parents move or maybe, you know, 
they just they sign a lease at a different apartment every year. That's not a problem. Maybe they've been in several different schools. And not to say that wasn't difficult for the individual, but that doesn't rise to neglect. Jessica Ford gives additional information on the screen out. We don't consider um, solely living in a hotel or being transient, which a lot of uh, the community can consider to be homeless, and a lot of educational entities consider that a definition of homelessness as, as well. But for Child Protective Services, that particularly does not meet the criteria for uh, alleged neglect. So basically, they have to just be able to ensure that their children are uh, safe and protected from the elements or make arrangements, perhaps with other caretakers um, or through other um, community resources such as shelters and such um, to ensure that they are protected from the elements. In the reports that were made at the start of this episode, they were screened in, but there was more than family homelessness that was reported. The family in the van was reported to not have adequate shelter that would protect the children from the elements, that the children were not provided adequate food and did not receive proper hygiene, and that there was domestic violence between the parents and one of the children intervened. In the case where the report was about the mom in the shelter with her 18-month-old, the report also talked about the child being exposed to mom's marijuana use and the child's contact with his father, who's an alleged sex offender. According to the Jordan Institute for Families, which partners with the State Division of Social Services, from July 2014 to June 2015, there were 130,000 reports of abuse, neglect, or dependency that were screened in in North Carolina. That means on average, there were 2,500 reports every week that were screened in in North Carolina. And every report that is screened in requires an assessment by a county department to determine if the child is abused, neglected, or dependent. Once a report is screened in, a clock starts ticking. When neglect is reported, the department must start the assessment within 72 hours of the report. That means the family will receive a phone call or visit from the social worker within three days. Jessica describes how that works for a family living in the van. Yeah, we obtain as much information as we can in the intake process about where um, that vehicle may be parked or where, where that uh, vehicle's been seen. And then we, um, if we don't have a phone number to contact that family, and typically we don't in that, those kind of situations, then we would go on site and um, search uh, for that particular uh, description of the vehicle and initiate that report and connect people with resources to eliminate um, that concern of homelessness. Jessica goes on to describe the department assessment in a conversation with me. Initially, the assessment entails responding within the required time frame, um, which is set during that two-level screening process. Oftentimes, not all times, but oftentimes if we don't feel like child safety um, would be compromised, particularly in those situations where it's deemed a family assessment, um, if we have a, a telephone number, um, either through our own internal history or, or via the reporter, we would contact that family and schedule a time to meet with them. Um, and then it really depends on the allegations. Sometimes it is necessary um, for safety to interview children alone. Um, and then oftentimes it's appropriate for us to interview uh, the family all together in regard to the allegations. And then um, at that initiation visit, we collect, in addition to interviewing them about the allegations, we also collect lots of information and interview all the household members and caretakers and all the children uh, regarding things like uh, substance use, domestic violence, you know, overall parenting, um, 
any kind of medical needs or mental health needs that they may have and consider that in our assessment on that first initial visit and then um, safety plan with the family or determine if a safety plan, safety planning isn't necessary and the situation is safe. If the situation is safe, what happens with the case? If the situation is safe, we still stay involved. We explain to the family at this point in time that we don't see any immediate um, safety concerns. And then we continue to assess the situation by speaking to collateral contacts or perhaps medical providers or mental health providers or those that are involved with the family. And then we also continue to assess and provide any needed resources for the family and then make a case decision after all the information has been um, vetted. If your case decision is that there really is no safety issue here, they might benefit from some community resources to help better their situation, but there's not not neglect occurring within the within the family. What happens? Then uh, prior to us making that case decision, we would make sure that we connected the family with those appropriate resources and did any referrals that were necessary and explained to the family that while it's not, um, we're not going to stay involved and it's not mandated that they do those things, that this is um, why we think that that might be be beneficial to their family unit. Um, And then we would close the case with services recommended and recommend those particular um, services and, uh, and provide that in a letter to the family as well. When you go out to do that initial interview with the family, do you disclose who the report was made from? No, absolutely not. All reporter information is confidential, um, and so they they don't know who the reporter is. When you go out and do an assessment, is there any typical response that you receive from a family? Because I imagine that it's a scary time for them to have somebody from the department show up and say, hey, we've received this report and we want to talk to you about it. Um, oftentimes, families... Um, you know, just have disbelief over someone making a report about them or or feel like it isn't grounded in truth um, or could be having a disagreement with a particular person. And those are typical things that um, families would talk about during that first initial visit. But they don't actually know who made the, the report. They're sort of guessing, right? Yeah, they, they often try to use a process of elimination. Um, and, and we're very careful with that and tell them that, you know, we can't confirm or deny um, who particular, you know, a particular reporter is and, and encourage them if they have, you know, uh, conflict with people in their family unit to just discuss those things with them outside of, you know, the Child Protective Services report. As Jessica described, at the end of its assessment, a county department may determine that there's no neglect and close the case. According to the Jordan Institute, more than half, 56% of the 130,000 screened in reports were closed after the assessment was completed. And in another 29%, the department recommended, but it did not require services for the family. So of the 130,000 screened in reports, only 15% resulted in a finding by the department that there were safety concerns. In those cases, the department may work with the family to safety plan. Jessica explains this process. If we determine that there are some safety issues or, um, you know, there's harm or or risk that rises to the level of uh, that it could be a safety issue in the very near future, then we engage that family in a conversation about what things have they thought about that they feel like might help eliminate those safety concerns or what things have they tried in the past 
Um, and so, and then we try to help them process through what would be helpful. And then we um, talk to the whole family about that plan and make sure that we put that safety uh, safety plan together on paper on the uh, formal safety assessment. And then we follow up um, to make sure that they uh, the plan is working for them and with collaterals and, and others that um, the plan has assured the safety of the child. Jessica goes on to explain what safety planning may look like for the family who's been living in the van. Typically, we would transport them back to the office just to try to help them think. Oftentimes, it's about helping them think outside the box. Um, a lot of times, families have resources, but perhaps you know, natural resources, but perhaps they've been disconnected from those individuals or or just aren't willing to reach out and, and help share what's going on in their life at the moment. Um, and we actually reach out to uh, other counties, the neighboring counties that have shelters as well, um, so that we can make sure that children don't have to enter care um, via homelessness. I've worked here since 2007, and I honestly can't remember a time where homelessness alone was a, a, a situation that a child had to enter foster care. If the safety plan works out, nothing may happen. The case ends there, with a successful plan having been implemented. But sometimes the plan is not followed. Here's an example from Judge Corbinning. When DSS gets up with that family who's living in that car, they're going to refer them to multiple homeless shelters first. That's what they're going to do. And if the family either can't get into a shelter because they're drinking or using drugs, or they won't go to a shelter, then, you know, so then they have the opportunity for, for at least stable housing and safe housing, not permanent, but, but a place where they could be safe with their family and they reject it, then, then that's where you sort of cross that line into neglect. When the family refuses to make a safety plan or to follow a plan, or if the situation is an emergency right from the beginning and the department determines the child needs to be removed immediately, the county department will go to court. But as Cindy Bizzle from the State Guardian Litem Program explains, Court intervention is the last resort. Um, and I think many departments of social services, as well as parents, they, they want to avoid bringing something to court, if at all possible. Part 2, Involving the Court. Of the 130,000 screened-in reports, 4% resulted in a child's initial out-of-home placement, meaning the children were removed from their homes. Just 4%. So the cases that go to court involve very serious safety concerns. In both of our cases, the reports were screened in, the assessment resulted in safety concerns, safety planning did not work, and the department thought court action was needed. A county department cannot remove a child from his or her home for more than 12 or 24 hours, depending upon whether it's a weekend or a holiday, without getting a court order. To get a court order, the department must file a petition in district court. The petition must allege that the child is abused, neglected, or dependent. The court case starts when that petition is filed. But the petition in and of itself is not a court order. If the department believes the children need to be removed immediately for safety reasons, it must ask the court for an emergency temporary custody order. And in North Carolina, we call that emergency temporary custody order a non-secure custody order. Judge Corpening and Judge Siler Mack explain what they see when a department asks for that non-secure custody order. 
In most of our cases, um, they're they're going they're going to ask for non-secure custody when they file because it has really gone downhill. It has really gotten bad. The family is really non-compliant, or it's just an emergency from the get-go. Non-secure custody uh, happens when there's an immediate risk of harm uh, to the child, and social services needs emergency intervention prior to the opportunity for any hearing that involves the parents. Um, and so, uh, but they can't do that without authority of a judge. And so. They prepare their petition, file the petition, and then seek judicial approval to take non-secure custody and place, place the child away from the immediate family, perhaps in relative placement, uh, perhaps in foster care, uh, but, but out of the custody of the immediate family of the parents. And can I just add, sometimes when, um, especially dealing and living in an area um, like we why a military um, installation, folks may not have family members. So sometimes when they're looking for a non-secure, they can also do it by placing them with a kinship, which mm -hmm. is would be a family, close family friend, church member, school, so uh, or other persons um, for the non-secure. And then sometimes it could be in the middle of the night when the emergency is really, really um, extra dense. So we get phone calls because you're on call. So it might be 2.45 in the morning or 3.45 a.m. But nevertheless, you hear what the concerns are, and you authorize and you sign the non-secure. And then at the next setting, available um, um, juvenile court setting, the hearing would be. When a non-secure custody order is granted, law enforcement and or a social worker will remove the children. I asked judges Corpening, Siler Mack, and Hartsfield how that works in terms of notifying the parents that the court has ordered their children be removed from them. They explain the notice like this. And so I think that's the notice is when social worker shows up at the door right. and the judge has already authorized it and right. the social worker says, I'm here for your children and law enforcement standing right behind her mm -hmm. or him. I think that's probably when they get that notice, if it's the first time right. that a child has been removed from them. And so when does the parent next have an opportunity, or not next, but have their first opportunity to address the fact that this order issued and they think that their child should not have been removed and should be back with them? Within seven days. Within seven days. Seven days, days not secure custody hearing. That's the maximum. But it's seven days is the maximum, or ten depending on a holiday. But it's the next available court session. Parents are entitled to a court-appointed attorney. And the clerk will appoint an attorney to each parent after the petition has been filed with the court. As the judges described, there will be a hearing within seven days of when the first non-secure custody order that removes the children from their home was ordered. I talked to Judge Hands from Mecklenburg County and Judges Hartsfield and Siler Mack about who is present for that hearing. So let's talk about the players in the courtroom for that non-secure. Okay. You have the Department of Social Services, right. and so who is that typically? The DSS attorney and the caseworker or the social worker who actually took custody of these kids or made the initial report. And then you have, you said mama, but you have, I assume, both parents. Parent, yeah, well, parents. that both parents are able to be identified and are present in the state and have been served. And I'll give you a twist, mom, dad, or sometimes stepdad, sometimes you have caretakers because it could be the grandparents who have custody of these kids. So whoever that is, all of those folks that are legally responsible for that child are there to be addressed. 
but a lot of times depending on who it is you could have a plethora of folks that will come as their supporting cast to say hey I'm here I'm pastor for mother she's been in my church I'm so I'm dad's boss he's worked with me forever I'm best friend I, I they call me auntie but I'm the godmother so you have all of those people come in and so if it's not chaotic you will you may allow all of those folks to stay in but if it becomes chaotic and disruptive sometimes which it does you send only those people that are necessary to allow them to stay in everybody else has to leave and you so if you have multiple children sometimes yes. you also have multiple fathers right. yep or multiple putative fathers that are also present who may have provisional counsel the children are also appointed a guardian ad litem to represent their best interests and legal rights You'll hear more about the role of a guardian ad litem later in the season. I asked Dorothy Hairston Mitchell, who's a parent attorney, what it's like to get appointed and meet her client for the first time. Say, for instance, a petition is filed um, on a Wednesday, and I get the paperwork that day, and the case is set for the next day for a non-secure hearing, then I may just be meeting the client in court, if they are, if they've been served and they know to come to court, then I'm meeting them. And if they do come, then I meet them at the courthouse. So that's my first contact with them. So what's that like meeting your client for the first time when their children have been removed? It's disheartening, to say the least. Um, they're of course usually very upset, very emotional, scared, um, angry, all of those different emotions. So it, my I, you know, I try to make them as comfortable as I can, not comfortable necessarily with their children having been taken, but comfortable with me and trusting me and helping them get through this process. And, and unfortunately, what happens is we don't have a lot of time when we get into that courtroom. If they've shown up for the non-security and we get to the courtroom and I answer the calendar, say, Judge, my client is present. Can I have an opportunity to speak with him or her so that we can determine whether we need to have, we're requesting a non-secure hearing. Then I'm having that little bit of time period between when the calendar was called and whenever they're going to call the case. And I'm trying to explain to the client, listen, I know you're upset. Try to calm down. This is what is we're here for today because they want to know about the case altogether, like what's going to happen all together from now until when, when I get my kids back. Um, and so I'm trying to explain to them about just today, um, but it's it, it's tough. It's tough for them, especially, and then it's tough on us as a parent attorney trying to get them to trust us so fast to be able to try to start the process of moving forward. Dorothy and I talked about how a parent attorney prepares for the hearing. For a non-secure custody hearing, the department has to prove certain factors. Um, is how do you prepare to show that those factors don't exist? Especially with the little amount of time that you have to prepare. Well, of course, I'm reading the petition before I get into the courtroom. So I'm in reading the petition. I'm trying to make a determination on my own without having even met my client yet. Does this, based on these facts, does this look like something that the client would have a good chance at convincing the judge that non-secure custody should not be granted? Unfortunately, most of the time, that's not the case. Um, so usually, then to answer, and this probably not really answering that part of it, but what usually happens is I'm talking to the client about 
this is probably going to have, you know, they're probably going to have to stay where they are unless you're able to give me some names of some family members or some people that you trust that we can put forth as someone that they should be placed with instead of staying in the foster care home they're in right now. You probably have a better chance at that, convincing the judge of that, than these things don't have not taken place. So therefore, your home is still safe enough for your kid to come home with you today. Because the non court custody hearing isn't the actual hearing on the case as to it definitely happened or it definitely didn't. Right. And that's part of the first thing I'm telling them. We're not here for today. And the way I explain it to them is all those things you see in this petition, we're not here today to convince the judge that those things are not true. Or DSS is not here to have to prove that those things are true. However, they are going to have to talk about those things to explain to the judge why your home is not safe. So it's still going to feel like they're trying to convict you, even though this is not a criminal courtroom. A lot of the parents feel like this is criminal. You've taken my kids. You're saying I did something wrong. You know, you're saying I'm guilty of something. So I have to explain all of how that is not the case. Also, in that first conversation, asking them, have you been able to see your child since they've been in foster care? What have they set up with you for visitation? And they'll either tell me, yes, I saw them yesterday or whatever. Um, whatever that is, then I'm going to ask for the non-secure order to include in it some minimum visitation, either continue with what they've gotten or we need something else, something in place for that is set that this, this is what they're actually going to get. Um, I definitely don't want to, we're not going to, I'm not going to allow a client to walk away with nothing in that non-secure order. Jamie Hamlet, the attorney for the Alamance County Department, describes the non-secure custody hearing. The thing we're talking about is county specific, and I hear particularly non-secures are held very differently from county to county. In our county, we generally don't have a hearing about whether there's a sufficient basis for the non-secure hearing. What we're generally having hearings about are where should the children be placed, if the current placement is appropriate, what should the parental contact look like. And we've actually really worked very hard on that. Social workers are trained from the outset to start, even if it's not at the point where they're looking at filing any sort of paperwork. Well, tell me, like, who are your support systems? If the child couldn't stay with you, where would you want the child to go? So I would say in a significant portion of our case, more than 75%, if there's a relative placement provider available, we've already either assessed that placement or gotten permission in the non-secure custody order for that placement. After this first hearing, but before the trial about whether the children are neglected, there may be more hearings that address whether non-secure custody continues to be needed, who the children should be placed with, who makes medical decisions for the children, and what visitation between the parent and the children should look like. And as long as the court orders that non-secure custody continue, the children will remain in an out-of-home placement until the trial is over. In both of our cases, the children were placed in non-secure custody. Tune in to our next episode to learn about the court adjudication of neglect. That means the trial. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Sarah DiPasquale, and I'd like to thank the following people who agreed to be interviewed and were featured in today's episode. Jessica Ford, Dina Fleming, Cindy Bizzle, Judge Corpeting, Judge Siler Mack, Judge Hartsfield, Judge Hands, Dorothy Hairston Mitchell, and Jamie Hamlet. This episode was produced by Stephanie Pankey and Duncan Yetman, with production help from Ben Trybulski. You can subscribe to Beyond the Bench on iTunes or Stitcher, And while you're there, please leave us a review. We want to hear your feedback. 
To learn more about my work and the various educational outreach products and programs by the UNC School of Government, visit us online at sog.unc.edu. See you next time.